All right. Ladies, I have just a few um, announcements before we get started today and jump into the text. Um, first of all, we have a new service project that we're starting. So maybe you saw when you walked in, there were some postcards that had like a little bag on it. I think that's what it was on it. If you didn't see that, there's postcards when you come in, okay? But I know Patty will also talk about this in her small group, but we're starting a service project um, and we're calling it Bags for Women. Um, we're collecting things for diaper bags. We have a contact at um, Heritage Valley Beaver, somebody who works in the maternity wing there, and she is helping us um, stuff and collect diaper bags for new moms. Um, these will be moms who are in need, who come in and they don't have what they need to be able to care for their newborn. Um, kind of the heart behind this is we know the church has been criticized a lot that we care about babies in the womb, but we don't care about them after they're born. And so we want to kind of step into that space and show that's absolutely not true. We care for moms and we care for newborns. And so we're going to try to stuff 15 diaper bags um, and then give them over to Heritage Valley. And if this is something that we see um, that these moms need and it's something that we go through quickly, we'll continue to produce these um, over the months to come. So we're excited about that. Um, but the, on that postcard, um, if you want to hold that up, Esther, actually, you could. There's a little like QR code on that, you could scan that QR code and it will shoot you over to a sign up genius where you can sign up for whatever you want to you know, bring, whether it's a diaper bag or wipes, like we have the things we desire. Patty also has a paper copy, so if you're like, I don't want to mess with QR codes, you just sign up on that paper copy and then we'll sign you up um, ourselves and you'll get like an email reminder telling you don't forget to bring it in. So you can just bring it back with you. We're going to collect through October. So anytime between now and October, you bring those items back and we'll hold on to them and then stuff the bags when we have everything we need. But it's things like diaper bags, wipes, baby bottles, burp cloths, you know, all those newborn things. So thank you for your help with that. Um, we're going to start here in Bible study, and then you'll see that we're going to send it out to the rest of the church here in just a week or so. So this will be all through women's ministry. But we always like to start with Bible study because you guys are very generous um, with your giving. So that is our service project for Bible study this year. We always do some type of service project um, just to kind of put action to our faith. So if you're able to participate in that and you want to participate in that, we would love to have you join us. It is due by the end of October. End of October. And I'll also send out a link in my email when I send you that email, um, either tonight or tomorrow, depending on how quickly we get our video done. Um, when that video comes to you, I'll have a link of a Sign Up Genius in that, too. So a couple different ways that you can sign up and participate in that. So we're excited for that. We're excited to partner with moms um, and be able to bless them in that way. Dave, am I rolling and ready to go? Awesome. All right, ladies, I'm going to start off with a word of prayer, and then we will dig in. So if you'd bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you um, for the time that we got to spend studying your word this week. Um, we thank you, Lord, that you do reveal yourself um, in many ways in your word. Um, but as we're going to see today um, in this passage of scripture, you reveal yourself to us in different ways as well. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a God who loves to be in relationship with his people. Um, I pray, Lord, that as we look at this today, that you would open our hearts to be able to hear from you, to learn, um, and to grow in knowledge of who you are. I also pray, Lord, for these ladies in their small group time, um, that that would be a time of just encouragement from one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, we're going to go ahead and dig right in because there's a lot to cover today. Um, maybe you were like reading this and you thought, wow, there's a lot of repetition and it seems like the text kind of jumps around a lot. Um, I hope you felt that because it does. Um, we're going to find out why as we go through because there's a particular literary device that is happening in this section of the text. Um, but we are to the place where Israel is standing at Mount Sinai. So Israel is at Mount Sinai here in this portion of the text, and that's really significant for a couple of reasons. And I just want to highlight that before we jump in. The first reason why this is really important that Israel is at Mount Sinai is because in Exodus chapter 3, and you might remember this if you were here last semester, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses was at the burning bush. He encounters God there at the burning bush. And God, um, Mo God, Moses, remember, Moses has all kinds of excuses as to why he should not be the one who's going to be this prophet for Israel. And God says to Moses, hey, this is going to be a sign to you that I'm going to work through you. Someday, after I deliver you and your people, you're going to worship me at this mountain. Do you remember that? And so here we are. And for Moses, this has to be a major moment. I can't even imagine what that would feel like to stand at that mountain and say, yes, God, you were right. And Moses is a completely different person by this point in the text. When we encountered him at chapter 3, he had been rejected by his people. He was afraid. He had excuse after excuse after excuse for the Lord as to why he was not the man to do this job. And we're going to see as we go through today that this is not the same person who made those excuses. He is confident in the Lord. He's confident in his position as the leader of Israel. So I'm excited to kind of draw that out together. The second reason why Israel being at Mount Sinai is significant is because this is going to mark the start of a covenant relationship between God and his people a very, very special covenant relationship. And we're going to see that it almost is going to feel like a marriage ceremony in a way. And then finally, it's important because they're going to stay here for a very long time. Actually, like ten, it's like 10 months and 19 days that they're going to camp at the base of Mount Sinai. And this is going to take us through a significant portion of scripture. It lasts all the way through la the rest of Exodus. They're at Mount Sinai all the way through Leviticus, and then 10 chapters into the book of Numbers. So a huge portion of scripture is devoted to what happens at Mount Sinai. So it is important that we kind of pause and recognize that. Now, we talked last week that there is a different feel to the book of Exodus going forward. We said that the last, you know, 19 chapters, 18 chapters were all about the idea of how is God going to deliver his people? So how is God going to get Israel out of Egypt, right? That was the big emphasis. How is God going to get Israel out of Egypt? And we saw he did it. And now the new question becomes something different. And we can kind of flip that. It's how is God going to get Egypt out of Israel? And let me explain what I mean by that. The Israelites lived in Egypt for a long period of time, hundreds of years they were there. They adopted many of their practices, including the worship of their other gods. And so God is going to have to train these Egyptians and say, you can't keep living the way you did before. You have to get the Egypt out of you. There is a different way that you will be expected to live as the people of God. There will be putting off the old self 
and putting on the new, right? That should sound familiar to us, right? It is the same. You are a new creation, a new birth, and there is going to be a different way that you will be expected to live. And we're going to see that today as God delivers his law to his people. So let's go ahead and dig in. We're going to cover chapters 19 through 2021 today is the portion of scripture we will cover. I will be reading from the ESV um, for the most part today, and I will tell you if I switch to a different version. Um, But for the most part, I'll be in the ESV. If you have a different version, that's okay. Sometimes that helps to catch different language as you read through. But beginning in chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so third new moon, it's been three months, about three months since they've left Egypt. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Do you hear that repetition? You might be thinking, like, man, Moses needs a thesaurus. Like, choose a different word, Moses. No. Moses is very purposeful in this. That repetition is for a reason. We're supposed to see that this is a time of chaos. They are in the wilderness, that emphasis there. They are in a time of chaos, but God is about to bring order for them out of chaos. And that is a theme throughout scripture that we see God take chaos and bring order. We saw that in the Genesis account where Moses wrote and said that the spirit was hovering over these chaotic waters. And then we saw God bring order to creation. And it's the same thing we're going to see here. God is about to bring order to chaos. The text continues and says, there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So this is the first of seven ascents that we're going to see Moses make up this mountain. I just want to remind you, Moses is over 80 years old at this point. Poor Moses. Seven times he's going to climb up and down this mountain as he meets with God and comes down to the people. And what we're going to see happening here is Moses is going to enter the people into this treaty with God, okay, this covenant with God. And the style in which this covenant is written is called a suzerain vassal treaty. Maybe you recognize that name. You might have heard that before in scripture. Um, It's not named for us. It's not like the text says. And now we're going to enter into a suzerain vassal treaty because the people would have recognized this language. Remember, we said this is written to a particular people at a particular time. And so the ancient Near Eastern people would have heard this language and been like, oh, okay, this is a suzerain vassal treaty. We're entering into a relationship with this king. So the suzerain would be the king, who is God. The vassals would be the people, the subjects. And so they're seeing here, okay, we're entering into a relationship here with a king. And I just want to show you the structure, and I'll highlight this as we go through. But the structure of a suzerain treaty is it would start with an introduction or like a preamble. And we see that here in verse 3 where it says, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So this is God's intro to the people. He's calling Moses up and he says, all right, you're going to say this to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Now, before we go further in the treaty, I do want to highlight the importance of this. The one thing, the people would not have been shocked by this language, by the style of this treaty. What they would have been shocked by is that they're making a covenant relationship with their God. They're making a covenant relationship with their God. That's not something that you did. 
You appeased gods. You worked to make them happy, but you didn't enter into relationship with them. And so right away, the people are being struck by the idea that this is a different type of God, a different type of relationship. And I want you to notice here, it says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So we have the house of Jacob and the people of Israel. Who is the house of Jacob? Who's the house of Jacob? Anyone want to shout it out? They're Israel, right? Yeah. So we have the same thing said twice. You should say this to the house of Jacob. You should say this to the house of Israel. Again, let's kind of dig into why the repetition. If you studied the book of Genesis, if you've been in that book before, you might remember that when God gave Jacob his new name of Israel, that still throughout the text of Genesis, it would switch from Israel to Jacob, Israel to Jacob. And when God used the word, or when Moses used the word Jacob to refer to Israel, it was because Jacob was, refer- was reverting back to his old ways. He wasn't trusting in the Lord. He was relying on his own trickery. And so the question that is being kind of prodded here and what the reader should be picking up on as we read that is, are the, are the people of Israel, are they going to be Israel or are they going to be Jacob? So basically, are they going to trust God or are they going to rely on their own understanding? And that's a question we need to keep in the back of our mind as we read this text because it's going to be very important for us. So again, is the nation of Israel, are they going to be a new nation of Israel and trust in the Lord or will they rely on their own understanding? Verse 4, we're entering now into the historical account. And this typically would be some battle language where the king describes to the people how he's conquered them and plundered them, and now they are his. But listen to how God describes his historical account with Israel. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, so he's referencing the plagues, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What a beautiful description of the Exodus. I bore you on eagles' wings. And notice how God describes their deliverance. He doesn't say, and I delivered you to Mount Sinai. He doesn't say, I delivered you to the promised land. He says, I delivered you to myself. He's saying it's not a location that you get delivered to. That's not where your ultimate hope is. Your deliverance is into relationship with me. Such a beautiful idea. Verses 5 through 6 are going to show us what are the stipulations and the blessings available to the people in this covenant. So let's look at verses 5 through 6. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, so God is really showing Moses and the people of Israel, hey, there's some important things here about what it means to be a people of God. And the first thing he draws to their attention to is the fact that a sign of being God's people is that you obey God, right? That's the first thing he says is, if you will obey my voice and keep my commands. And so he's saying to be a people of God requires obedience. The second thing he shows them is that, hey, you're a treasured possession, You're going to be adopted into my family. He's revealing to them that he has this plan where he has taken, taken an elect group of people 
and adopted them into his family. And just in case the Israelites start to think that maybe that adoption is because they are special, Moses tells them this in the book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so God reminds his people, hey, it's not because you were so numerous or more mighty or anything like that. I saved you. I redeemed you because I made a promise to your forefathers because I loved you. And so we're seeing that this this election, this choosing of the people of Israel is not because of anything that they have done on their own. He goes on to tell them that the earth is his. And this is interesting to think of why would God communicate this to the people during this treaty. But remember, they're, call, they're coming from polytheistic Egypt, and they're going to polytheistic Canaan. And so this is a reminder for them that, like, there are no other gods. You will serve only me. Those gods that you served back in Egypt, the god of the sun, the god of the waters, like, I created the sun. I created the waters. All the earth is mine. And so he's making a statement here about being the one true God. And then finally, he ends this section by telling them their purpose. Who are they to be as a people of God? They're to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Such beautiful things here. In Genesis 12, 2, when God was calling Abram, and he was telling him what his purpose was going to be. He said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The people of God are to be a blessing to those around them. And then in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says this about the people of God. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. What is the purpose of God's people? It's to be a blessing to those around him, around us, and it's so we can proclaim his excellencies. We just don't do it so that we look good. We do it and we proclaim the excellencies of God who chose us and redeemed us and made us holy. So some beautiful things are just in those two paragraphs really packed full of just important truths of who we are as people of God. So as we move into verse 7, there's another literary device that is happening throughout this entire text that I just want to break down for you. I think it will help us to understand some of the jumping around that the text is going to do. So this is called a chiasm. You might recognize this from last year. We talked a little bit about the chiastic structure. Um, I'm going to break this down for us. But a chiasm, what it basically does is it's like a sandwich. It has two events on the end that are similar, two events towards the center that are the similar, and then it works towards a very a main point in the middle. So it tells a story to a middle point that's the main point, and then it retells the story going backwards. Okay? Seems weird, but this was very, very common in Near Eastern culture. This was the way that they wrote. This was the way that they told stories. And part of the reason why is was it was easy to memorize. 
This is an oral tradition. They are passing these stories on by word of mouth. And so they were less concerned with the story being in, li- like a, in a historical order or a timeline of events and more concerned with the details of the story and would people be able to retell this. And so as we read, we're going to find that there's some repetition here. So as you can see, chapter 19 is going to cover the Lord. We've already seen part of this. The Lord comes to the, t- comes to the people and says, hey, I want to make a covenant to you, with you, okay? I want to make a covenant with you. And then we're going to see that the people are going to say, yes, we want to be in covenant too. And the Lord is going to descend onto the mountain of Mount Sinai. There's going to be earthquakes and, mount, and the, trem- the mountain's going to tremble um, and there'll be lightning. And then we come to verse 20, or chapter 20, and this is B of our chiasm. This is a second section, and God's going to give the law. In this section, it will be the Ten Commandments. And then we move to part C in verses 18 through 21 of chapter 20. This is the center of our chiasm. So we know then that this is the main point. So you can see it's kind of like a puzzle to try to figure out where is the story moving? What is the main thrust? So when we get to chapter, chapter 20, verses 18 through 21, the question we're going to be trying to ask is, okay, what's the main point here? What is Moses trying to communicate? And then the story starts to back back up. So we come then to chapter 20, verses 20, or chapter 20, 22 through chapter 23, and this is the giving of additional laws. There are different laws from the Ten Commandments, but they're laws again. And we're going to have, um, Steve is going to cover these in two weeks with us. We won't get to this part of the chiasm. And then we're going to get to our last A, our last section, and we're going to have God again descend onto Mount Sinai. Okay, He's going to come down in fire and the earthquakes again, and the people are going to say yes again to the covenant, and they're going to ratify it. Okay, so do you see how we have this structure, the way that the text is set up, so that we have similar things at the beginning and end, similar things in the middle, and then that center part, those four verses in the middle, are the thrust of the main part of all of this section. So what we're going to cover today with this chiastic structure is we'll be hitting A1, B1, and then C. Okay, so we're working towards the middle section Um, and trying to figure out what is the main idea of this. So let's go ahead and dig into the first part of this chiasm, starting with uh, chapter 19, verse 7. So Moses came down, okay, he went down back down to the people, and he called the elders of the people and set before them all these things, all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses comes down. He talks to the people. They say yes, and Moses heads back up the mountain. And then this happens, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. I love that the Lord does this for Moses. He's saying, like, hey, I know that these people are going to doubt. I'm going to confirm to them that you are who you say you are. I'm going to confirm your leadership. And so Moses is saying to, or God is saying to Moses, I will confirm so that people do not doubt that you are the one I've chosen to be the prophet and mediator. And notice how God comes down when he meets with, Mo- with Moses and the people. He's going to come down in a thick cloud, in a thick cloud. 
You might know and have remembered portions of scripture where we're told that we can't see the full glory of God, that there's parts of God that we're not going to experience until we're with him in the new heavens and new earth. And so his glory has to be veiled as protection for us. And so he's going to come down in this thick cloud. And we see this in other portions of scripture. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is having a vision of the throne room and he's before God and he's trembling and scared, the throne room is filled with smoke. But Isaiah still experiences the glory of God. In Matthew chapter 17, during the transfiguration, when the disciples wake up and see these figures and the, the glory that is, that, is being, um, uh, ex- that is coming out of them, we're told that a bright cloud comes over and veils what they're able to see. In Psalm 97.2, it says this, The Lord is king. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. And so this idea that God is, he is so transcendent, so above us, that we can't even see his full glory. That is incredible. But what's even more incredible is what comes before that, that God says, I am coming to you. He is a God that is so transcendent, but he's a God who is willing to veil his glory so that he can come down to us. He doesn't say, hey, you come up to me. He's saying, I'm coming to you. And that's the story of scripture, isn't it? God coming down to be in relationship with his people. We saw it in the garden when he walked with Adam and Eve. We see it in the life of Jesus when he sets aside glory that was rightly his and takes on human form and comes down to earth to dwell with us. It's the story of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes down and dwells in our hearts It's not because we change our hearts from stone to flesh. We can't do that on our own. It's the Holy Spirit coming down and doing it for us. And so we serve a God who is transcendent, but who is also willing to descend. And that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Let's go ahead and continue here with verse 9. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for all the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up onto the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Those are like the last words I want to speak in a women's Bible study. (laughs) Do not go near a woman. We'll get to that in a minute. But let's look at what is happening here with Moses and the Lord. God is saying to Moses, like, there's a special covenant that's going to be happening here. Okay, get ready. There's going to be a ceremony. And again, remember I told you that there's going to have a feel of almost a marriage ceremony. And so Moses, Moses is going to go and help the people prepare themselves to meet their king. And there's this couple things that they are to do to prepare. They have three days to do this. And the first is they're going to wash their clothes. And not just because they've been traveling for three months. It's not because they're, they're dirty and God wants them to look their best. But clothes in the Bible are often a symbol for what's going on inside our hearts. Remember in the new heavens and the new earth how we're going to be robed in clothes of white? 
because we're going to be pure in the eyes of the Lord. And so God is saying there's a purification that needs to happen here. Go and wash and prepare yourselves. And not just your clothes, he's also speaking about preparing your hearts. You're going to meet with the king. And then they're to avoid the mountain for three days. They're going to have barriers around it. No one can touch it. And so there's this sense of, like, you cannot meet with the Lord. You cannot come and be with me until you prepare. There's a way to rightly encounter the Lord, and you need to prepare for it. And so for three days, they're going to get ready. And notice that if anyone goes up onto the mountain, that they can't even be touched because they're going to be put to death. And so one of the purification laws for the nation of Israel is not to be able to touch a dead body. And so even the, the way that they will be put to death is through stoning or through arrows so that nobody has to touch the body. Okay? They're to be prepared and pure. And finally, they're to avoid sexual relations. Why? Well, because they're getting ready to enter into a marriage relationship with God. God is saying, I want you holy to myself. So for these three days, you're going to set aside every earthly desire, and you're going to prepare to meet with me, okay? He wants them holy to himself. And then they're waiting for this trumpet blast to come. So for three days, they prepare, and they're going to wait for the trumpet blast. And the trumpet blast, notice, is coming from the Lord. This is not something that Moses is going to sound or the elders are going to sound. It's a sound that will come from the Lord, and maybe you noticed in verse 13, if you were reading along, you might have noticed that I added a preposition. Okay, I did that on purpose because the ESV actually skips over a Hebrew preposition that is really, really important for us to be able to understand this text. Um, it's a preposition. It's called va in the Hebrew, um, and it means on. And the NRSV actually translates it correctly. It says they shall go up on to the mountain. Okay, they get to go up onto the mountain. So if you wanted to switch in your phone to the NRSV version to see that, you could. So God is saying, hey, for three days, you're going to wait here below, prepare yourselves, and then you're going to come up on the mountain, and you're going to meet with me here. You're going to meet with me here. Remember, he wants to enter into relationship with, uh, with them. He's going to show them his glory. Let's look at verse 16. And before actually we read this, I want to point out what's happening here. In verse 16, we're going to get ready to see a theophany. A theophany, maybe you might remember this from last semester. We learned about a theophany when we saw the pillar of cloud and fire. It's a visual way that God shows himself to his people. Because God doesn't have a body. He's not embodied. So how do we experience God? Well, God is so gracious that he gives us ways to be able to see part of who he is. And so sometimes he comes in a cloud or a whisper. Sometimes he comes in fire like the burning bush. And here we're going to see this just magnificent, magnificent display of God's glory as he descends on the mountain. And the people have seen this before, but we get a sense that there's something special here because they've had to prepare for this experience. Psalm 24.3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? those who have clean hands and pure hearts. So who can come up onto the mountain? Who can experience God? Who can ascend? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts. And this really should speak to us too, because as we read through this, you're going to hear language that sounds very similar to how our king is going to return one day. When Jesus descends for the final time, there will be a trumpet blasting. There's going to be clouds that he comes down on. The earth is going to tremble and shake. 
This should point us forward to Jesus. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is, am I ready for my king? Am I ready to encounter him? Do I have clean hands and a pure heart? Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Okay. So remember, we said that the command was to go up onto the mountain. Verse 18. We're going to see here that Moses is going to retell this story three times in this section. Okay, so the narrative kind of pauses, and Moses retells the same thing again. So now he says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Okay, so we get a second retelling of this. And notice that emphasis on the trumpet. It's getting louder and louder. And as readers, we should be saying, go, people. This is your cue. Go up onto the mountain. Meet the Lord. Because that's what they should be doing. And notice that as this is happening, Moses speaks and God answers him. And we're going to find out in just a few sections here, just a few verses, what God says to him on that mountain. But here we get another retelling it in verse 20. Moses tells it again. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Okay, so three retellings of the same thing that describe what happened when the Lord came down on the mountain. And now the narrative picks up in verse 21. Moses has gone up. The people have stayed down, and we get this. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said, Lord, the people cannot come up on Mount Sinai, for you yourselves warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up and bring Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through and come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses goes back down to the people and tells them. Okay, so we get some contradiction here, okay? And we're going to kind of find out why in a little bit. But now all of a sudden the Lord is saying, hey, the people can't come up, okay? Go back down and tell those people not to come up here or they're going to die, okay? And you might be wondering, like, why, why? Why the change of heart? Is this a contradiction in the text? And it's not, because we're going to get the answer to that when we get to the center of the chiasm. So hold that thought. Remember how I told you this text jumps around a little bit. So then we come to chapter 20. This is part B of our chiastic structure, as you can see up here. So we're going to get the giving of the law. Okay, this is the first giving of the law. There's actually 613 laws that are recorded in the Bible for the people of Israel. 613, and there's actually probably more. 
but those were the ones that the authors of the text felt were most important in telling the story of the nation of Israel. So we have 613 recorded, and we're going to get the first of those that we call the Ten Commandments, or the people of Israel would have known as the Ten Words. This we call often, that we call it God's moral code. Maybe you've heard that before, his moral code. And these are going to be different than a lot of the laws to come. We know that we still follow these Ten Commandments. They're still part of what we do as followers of Jesus. Many of the other laws that, are co that come are prescriptive and instructions just for the nation of Israel. But these are instructions for all of God's people. But as the laws come, they were given for a particular people in a particular time, and they were instructive to them for how do we live out these Ten Commandments in our day-to-day -day life. What does it look like to not steal, and what should be the consequences for that as a nation of Israel? What does it look like to honor your father and mother? What does it look like to worship the Lord only as a nation of Israel? And so we'll have other laws as we go through this text that deal specifically with that nation. But these Ten Commandments we should take as laws for us as well. And maybe you notice as we go through, this is going to be another treaty, another suzerain treaty. And we can see this here as we begin. It says, and God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt into the house of slavery. Do you see that introduction and that, that historical account again? Okay, we see that treaty again. And then he goes on in verses 12 through 17 to give us what are the parts of the treaty. Okay, what are the different things that you need to do? He says, verse 3, and I'm going to briefly go over these because we're going to cover these. Maybe you remember I told you this. We're going to spend two weeks on the ten, the ten words. So I'm just going to briefly go through these. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your mother and father. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. So when we get that portion of text in chapter 19 where it says that Moses spoke to the Lord and God answered in the thunder, this is what God is answering. He's giving these ten commandments to Moses up on the mountain. And these commandments, as we look more closely at them, we're going to see that they're broken down into two parts. One through five, the first section that we will cover next week, deal with authority. Okay, they deal with authority. The first four focus on God's authority, and then the fifth on God-given authority, our parents, right? What does it look like to respect authority as people of God? That's what we're going to see answered in those first five and then 6 through 10 are going to tell us how do we relate to other people. As a people of God, how do we love those around us? How do we interact with our peers? I love that this section or this study is called God of Freedom. And then one of the first things we get is loss. Um, we often like to think that freedom is the absence of law, but we're going to see as we go through this that God's laws are good and freeing for his people. We'll see that God's law acts as a mirror for us. It helps to convict us of sin. It shows us where we fall short of God's glory. We'll see that God's law acts as a rod, that it restrains evil. 
And we'll also see that God's law helps us find a path to what, what does it look like to please this God. He doesn't leave us questioning. He shows us very clearly what pleases him. And so it acts as a path towards that. So that is God's first law given to the people, and that is going to bring us to verse 18, which is the very center of our chiasm. Okay, so this is what the Israelites would have been looking for as they read through this. They would have been looking for this very center of the text. And so we come to that here in verse 18, and I want you to notice this is our fourth flashback of God coming back down onto the mountain. So we had it retold three times in a row. We take a break for the Ten Commandments, and now we're getting it told for a fourth time, okay? Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you will not sin. So the question we need to be asking right now is, why did God tell Moses later that the people could not come back up the mountain? Why did he tell him that? Well, let's look here. We see, first of all, that they stood far off, right? They stood far off. They did not come up onto the mountain like God commanded. And so if you look back at verse 5 of chapter 19, In that section, when God said the terms of his treaty, the first thing he said is, if you will indeed obey my voice. So right away, we see a lack of obedience to God's voice. But Moses also says to the people, this is a test. This is a test for you. And so we should ask the question of, like, what is the test? Well, God is testing his people to see Are they willing to turn from their old ways? Are they willing to trust not their own understanding of what is happening, but trust the Lord? Even when it looks like death, will they surrender their own way of life and completely trust the Lord? We see this same test given in different parts of the Bible. Adam and Eve had this test. Will they surrender their own way of thinking and trust in the Lord? And we see that they failed it right? And they react very similarly to the people of Israel. When God comes in the wind, remember he comes in the wind and his voice comes out of the wind and calls to them, and they react with fear and trembling. The same test was given to Abraham with Isaac, and he passes his test. And there's so many similarities between these two stories. Abraham was told that he was also to go up onto a mountain for his test. And he was told that he had three days. Remember, he tracked for three days and prepared for it, just like the Israelites had three days to prepare. And Abraham is told that he needs to sacrifice the future of his family, the future of God's promise to him that he was going to have a great nation. And Abraham obeys and listens to the voice of the Lord. And this is what God says to him. He says, I know you fear the Lord, because you obeyed my voice. God is asking, will you surrender your way of thinking and fully trust in me? But rather than surrender, the people send a representative on their behalf, don't they? Rather than being blessed 
and becoming a nation of priests, look at verse 6 and 19. God said, if you obey my voice, you will be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Not you're going to have a priest or a line of priests. You will be a kingdom of priests. So what happens? Well, in chapter 19, verse 24, we saw that the Lord said to Moses, hey, don't let the people come up. They can't come up anymore. They didn't obey my voice. And who does the Lord say to bring up with Moses? Aaron. Who does Aaron become? A priest. It is through Aaron that we see a line of priests come for the nation of Israel. God still works his purposes, but it wasn't fully realized for the people. It wasn't fully realized at this moment. So they become a kingdom or a line of priests rather than a kingdom of priests. And so I want to take you back to the question we first looked at at the beginning. I said, notice that there was the house of Jacob and the house of Israel. And Moses was kind of setting up this tension for us to ask the question, who are the people of Israel going to be? Will they be the house of Jacob and trust in themselves, or will they be the house of Israel? And we have our answer. They are still the house of Jacob. They do not fully trust in the Lord. They do not fully trust in the Lord. And I think we need to ask the same question, which are we? And I think if we're honest, we can say that we find it difficult, too, to surrender our own will and our own desires. And we find it difficult to walk without fear. We come to the Lord often with questions and doubt. And when the Lord asks us to walk into fire, or when we can't see what is happening, we often react in fear and trembling as well. We might stand far off and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm not stepping into that. It is sometimes difficult to trust in the Lord, but God is showing us here that a sign of maturity in faith is that we will surrender our own will to the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5 says that we should trust in the Lord and lean not on our understanding. Lean not on our understanding. So a sign of God's people is trust even when we don't understand. But let's look at verse 21 and see how Moses reacts. It says, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I told you we're going to see Moses is a completely different man. He's a completely different man. We see that, no, Israel is not yet at a place in maturity in their faith where they can trust in the Lord. But Moses is. Moses is. He draws near to the Lord into the thick darkness with confidence. He doesn't argue with the Lord. He doesn't stand far off with his people. He knows what his role is. And so Moses steps into this role of mediator and goes up into the darkness and meets with the Lord. And so that's what I want to end with today is just a prayer for us as we think about this and we chew over this, that we would grow to be women who could be characterized by this type of faith. A faith where we will fully surrender our own desires, our own wants, our own fears, and trust completely in the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you for what it reveals about what you want for us. That we would be a people characterized by complete obedience and total surrender. Lord, we confess 
that that's often not where we find ourselves, that we are often hesitate, hesitate to lay down our own desires and our own um, wants because we think our way is best. Or we see something that seems dangerous and we can't fully trust in your plan for us. But Lord, your text here reminds us that your way is best, that even when we can't see it, even when we can't see it, we need to trust in you. And so, Lord, I pray that for each of us today. I pray, Lord, that you would work on our hearts, that we would be um, seen as women who boldly step forward into faith in situations that others can't understand. I pray, Lord, that our testimony to the rest of the world would be so great that we would be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, because of the way that we trust in you. I pray, Lord, that our lives would mirror Moses' actions here, that we would step into moments of darkness and meet you there with full confidence that you will be there and care for us as our king. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, ladies, enjoy your time in small group this morning. You are dismissed.